Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to What Goes Up, a weekly markets podcast. My name is Mike Regan. I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg. And I'm Valdana Hyrick, a markets reporter at Bloomberg. And this week on the show, you probably heard about this, but the Federal Reserve signaled this week that even though they paused this month, central bankers are expecting to lift interest rates again this year. Yet the stock market took it all in stride and is continuing its rip-roaring 2023 rally that's been largely driven by hype around artificial intelligence. So what are we to think about a week like this? Is the equity market right to fight the Fed this time, given all of the optimism around AI? Or is it time to sober up and get with the Fed's program? We're going to get into it with a fund manager who manages a global equity fund. But first, Valdana, I'm very excited for our Craziest Things segment because... Can I give a hand in giving a spoiler? <laughs> All right. That joke's not going to make sense till later in the podcast, but I will confirm it's a good joke and listeners really will, under, good, will right? understand yeah. later. I'm really sticking my neck out here. Also a very off-color joke, but... Yeah, it's actually really terrible. Stop. You know, our guest, he's joining us for the first time ever, and he probably thinks we're just two big weirdos. Which is Which fair. is true. Yeah, yeah it's true. true. But I really don't want to keep him waiting. It's Mark Baribo. He's the head of global equity at Jenison Associates, which is the fundamental equity business of PGIM. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's great to be here. I promise our little intro will make a little more sense later, but maybe just to start out, you can tell us about your role at Jenison and what you do there. I'm the head of global equities at Jenison, so we manage global equity portfolios, international equity portfolios, and emerging market portfolios, both small mid-cap and large cap, so that whole spectrum. And our specialty at Jenison is growth equities, and all of our global products are growth-oriented. So, Mark, did what we heard from Jerome Powell this week change your thinking at all about what to expect for the rest of the year? Not at all. The big hit the equity markets took last year was in response to the change in Fed policy. We got the big rate increases, unprecedented really, for any rate cycle in the post-war era. And... Uh, that speed led to valuation declines across the board last year, but particularly growth stocks, which dropped relative to value stocks to their lowest level since the crisis in 08. So the setup coming into this year was pretty good on a value from a valuation perspective. And now the markets are just reacting to earnings news and normal fundamental things. And that's why I think it's looking pretty constructive. Mark, how difficult is it for the Fed to get its messaging right going forward? Like they didn't hike this time, but then they came out saying we do want to continue potentially hiking further later on this year. 
They see growth actually being better than they had anticipated prior to yesterday's meeting, et cetera, et cetera. Like, how difficult is it going to be for them to actually message this to the market and investors? They overshot on the downside. They're probably going to overshoot on the upside. That's typically what the Fed does. Let's say 80 to 90% of it's behind us. So I think that's why the markets are moving on. You know, Mark, as I mentioned in the introduction, artificial intelligence following the release of the latest versions of chat GPT has really captivated investors' attention. But I do think what's fascinating, there's a lot of hype, but there does seem to be some fundamentals attached to the theme almost immediately when you look at the outlook from a company like NVIDIA. I know one of the top holdings in your Global Opportunities Fund, uh, Oracle uh, last week saying their cloud revenue is really getting juiced by AI as well. Yeah, I'm sort of reminded of that old cliche that in the gold rush, most people that got rich were the merchants selling the picks and shovels. And to me, I feel like, you know, in this gold rush, it's the chip makers, the cloud companies that are the picks and shovel merchants of this. I'm just curious, though, with that all said, how you're thinking about AI as far as separating the hype from where the true prospects are, the potential for fundamental improvement for various companies in various sectors? Sure. I mean, well, first, I, I would absolutely agree with you that the infrastructure layer that allows for this accelerated computing to go on is the way to play AI right now. Because we're in the R&D phase, the applications are just getting developed, and it is going to be a tectonic shift in technology for the next decade. It's the biggest thing to happen since the mobile internet. And so we're very excited about it. But again, the best way to play it is through the infrastructure required to, to do this computing. So that starts with high-end semiconductors. It starts with cloud-based computing workloads. And I think investors will do quite well in that. And then as we move forward, you're going to see more and more software applications embed this technology. That's already starting, but it's going to accelerate over the next year. This isn't a long-term thing. You're not going to have to wait three to five years to see what happens. It's going to start to come into every application that's important for productivity purposes in the next four quarters. And then we'll start to see separation, like who's got the winning formula, who's developing unique applications that we couldn't even dream of. It may be old companies, it may be new companies, we don't know. And, but what's important, this is a real advancement in technology. It's going to be utilized aggressively. And so I think investors should definitely try to position for it. Yeah. And Mark, the other narrative of the year that sort of has gone hand in hand with AI is what I would refer to as the top heaviness of the rally that we've seen this year. The big mega cap tech stocks are really dominating the gains. And I'm curious how you approach that as a fund manager. You know, as I mentioned, NVIDIA is one of your top holdings. Do you have any limits on sort of how big of a allocation you can give to one stock? Does it worry you at all, this top heaviness? How do you think about that when you're managing a fund like this? First, I would say if you own these stocks in your portfolio, you're really happy. <laughs> yeah, so I have no complaints about the concentration of the market. So there's a couple of reasons behind it. One, we started the year at very low valuations because of what happened last year. 
Secondly, these companies are generating among the highest levels of free cash flow you can find in the global stock market. And that's one of the reasons investors are flocking to them. It's because you don't have to take a lot of risk to participate in a market rally. And investors still are a little wary about what's happening out there because the Fed has tightened so much. So uh, I'm not saying there's a flight to safety, but there's a flight to quality. And so they're benefiting from that. And then, of course, the AI boom has ignited a catalyst for future growth. And that catalyst really wasn't here a year ago. We didn't know where the next wave of investment spending would occur. And now we know. And so that clarity is leading the true companies that benefit from it to, to lead the market. And then other things are participating. And so what I would say right now is as we go into earnings season this summer and go into the fall, you've got to be careful because you don't want to be exposed in stocks that participated in the rally, but in reality have nothing new to offer the marketplace because those will probably correct. And Mark, broadly speaking, what is the base case on AI for the average investor, for instance? So why might somebody be buying stocks right now based on the AI theme? Is it the idea that these companies have so much cash and they, as you said, maybe will be putting some of it towards research and development, et cetera? Well, you want to be in the ones that one are positioned in the infrastructure build out. NVIDIA is an easy example. We refer to their earnings release on uh, May 24th as the big bang because in, in my history of doing growth equities since the 90s, I've never seen a company raise guidance for a quarter by $4 billion. That's unprecedented. So their data center revenue is effectively going to double quarter over quarter from $4 billion to $8 billion. And again, these are numbers that are staggering. So NVIDIA's valuation, ironically, has been declining the last month, not going up, even though the stock is, because the power of that earnings revision is so huge. With fundamental strength there, it gives investors more confidence that you're not buying into hype. You're actually buying into real demand strength, and that's very good. Other beneficiaries, of course, are Microsoft because of their Azure cloud and their big investment in chat GPT. And of course, you have Google Cloud, and Google, of course, has deep learning. It's also an AI expert. And Amazon's AWS will probably benefit as well. So you have different ways where you're going to see positive revenue and earnings revisions, hopefully as the year goes on, from that pure investment spending. I think that's why the stocks are doing well. And you don't have to get ahead over your skis yet thinking about what are the new applications that are going to come out that are very exciting, I can't miss. You don't have to worry about that yet. That'll develop over the next year. Mark, earlier in the year and late last year, it felt like the consensus really believed that a recession was inevitable. Now, as the year goes on, I think it's much more debatable whether this proverbial soft landing can actually perhaps maybe be achieved. But I'm wondering how much of that plays into the outlook for growth stocks. If we do see a deterioration in the data, rise in joblessness, slower GDP, or even negative GDP, 
How big of a risk is that to this whole AI theme and the capital spending that goes along with it that is propelling it? Okay, first on the the recession outlook, I mean, the recession's been pre-announced four or five times every quarter here. (laughs) Maybe it happens, but we had a big downturn in home construction last year. We had a big downturn in Silicon Valley last year. Big layoffs, as you know. So you've had these rolling recessions in different segments of the marketplace over the last year. And so far this year, I don't know, what have we created? 1.7 million new jobs? That's not a recession. It's steady state, slow growth. So fueled by a powerful job market. So we probably do get a soft landing. I think what's that's what the market is coming around to believing. Now, what does it mean for growth stocks? It's really bullish for growth if you go into a soft landing because the average company is seeing a slowdown in its earnings, whereas growth companies will be putting up, hopefully, on average, double-digit earnings growth. And that's quite a differentiator in a slowing, uncertain market environment. And that's indeed what we're seeing in our portfolios. We looked at this data the other day because we just gone through a big earnings season. And for the first quarter, the weighted average growth in the portfolio was around 15%. For the S&P 500, it's 3.2. You're finally getting rewarded for that growth. Again, once that big re-evaluation reset occurred last year. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. So your funds obviously are doing well this year, but at the same time you said today's markets are among the most challenging we have seen in several decades. There's a lack of visibility, contradictory indicators. Can you talk about that? Yeah, it all starts with the pandemic, right? So we had the V-shaped recovery during the pandemic. It's It shocked the global economy. The growth companies did very well during the pandemic because they were supplying Everything from streaming entertainment to laptops needed to work remotely, digital transformation of companies as they accelerated their cloud deployments to to make everything work. And so we had a big demand surge and then the hangover post-pandemic, 
as you adjusted to more normal rates of spending growth. And for the whole economy, of course, we had the supply chain problem, which led to the inflation. And that's easing now as supplies come into the market. You're no longer constrained on any number of products, right? And goods inflation has turned negative. Services inflation is still positive. That's a very complicated environment with the Fed being as aggressive as they are because the yield curve would suggest we go, we might have a recession, but of course the yield curve predicts lots of recessions that never happen. So that's not a certainty. And then you have different economies around the world doing different things, which is actually beneficial. So the US might be slowing, whereas China's coming out of the pandemic finally. So that's a a good offset to slow down here. Europe seems to be doing okay for Europe, not a problem. There's a lot of cross currents that are very challenging. Now, getting back to one of the other points that was raised earlier questions, the other thing that's likely to happen, we think, in the next couple of years is a lot of good support for a number of U.S. investment areas. And the reason is we have this unprecedented combination of public industrial policy that we've never had before. So we have the U.S. Chips Act, which is going to lead to the onshoring of semiconductor manufacturing in the United States. That's tens and tens of billions of dollars of CapEx that will occur here. On top of the Inflation Reduction Act, which is, again, leading to multi-billion dollar build-out of electric vehicle and battery manufacturing, as well as alternative energy systems. So we have tremendous structural support in certain areas of capital spending, which we've typically not had in the U.S., which is structural and secular and has years to run, and we're in the early innings of it. So that's also very exciting. These are very positive trends that are occurring maybe as the overall economy slows. But if you're invested in those segments of the economy, you're actually seeing strength. It's really important from a stock selection perspective to weed through those all of the different parts of the market and just focus on those that have really good secular demand strength, because I think that's going to work. You know, Mark, there was a chart I must have seen about a thousand times this year that basically showed the NASDAQ 100 and the inverse of some treasury yield, whether it's the 10-year yield or the real yield. And the thinking being that a lot of people thought there was this negative correlation as interest rates go up, growth stocks should suffer. That's obviously, if that correlation existed, it's been demolished in the past month or two. I think there's many Cliff Asnes and others who would argue that that was a bogus correlation to begin with, that we're being fooled by a simple overlay chart like that. I'm just curious how you're thinking about that relationship between interest rates and growth. Is it a valid headwind to growth stocks as an asset class? And I know you like to focus on the quality with the strong balance sheets and the strong cash flow. If you're thinking of growth as a factor on its own, does interest rates worry you at all about it? Historically, the correlation wasn't there, but it was there with a bullet in 2022. Yeah, yeah. As you said, it's broken down this year, so it's not working anymore. I think 
the only important part about that correlation is just the step function change. So if you do go from a, an interest rate environment that's been there for a long time, and then you jump rates up several hundred basis points pretty quickly, that's a lot to ask for from a valuation perspective. You are going to get compression. And we did get that. But once that happens, it's over. Now it's just the way we look at it, it's made the best company win, right? Because you reset valuation across the system globally. And uh, now we'll see who has the best growth and earnings growth and that stock's going to win. That's our view. I need to give a shout out to our colleague, Katie Greifeld, who sometimes fills in as co-host on this show for thinking of the next question, but I want to pose it to you as well. I'm wondering what you think of the two areas of the market that are super hot right now being totally polar opposites. One is AI and the other is money market funds, which are still seeing tons of cash coming in. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if uh, you can get 4% or 5% yield on a, and then the tax exempt ones, even better on a tax adjusted basis, that's stiff competition for stocks. So I think it's really hard for the average stock to compete against that for sure. But the, one of the reasons AI related names are doing so well is they do offer good competition because they have the prospects for perhaps very strong growth going forward and very strong current demand. So that looks relatively safe. So I, that's how I would explain that. And then you're right. You have that deep void in the middle that's not really doing anything. Yeah. Well, it kind of goes to what you said earlier about it really being, you know, it, it when you look at a market that NASDAQ 100 is up, what, 30% this year, it, you think, yeah, you think, oh, it's this speculative frenzy, but it really is a chase for quality and maybe safety on the other end of the barbell with the money market funds. But Vildana, I've got to confess, this is one of those nightmare scenarios for me when I have to pronounce the name of a company that I'm not 100% sure how to pronounce. Like NVIDIA? NVIDIA? Well, I can say NVIDIA. <laughs> this is one of those companies I've read I've read the name a, a million times. What is it? And I'm not sure I've ever said it out loud. I'm going to say Hermes or Hermes? Hermes. Hermes? Is that how you say yeah. it? Yeah. Mark, is she That's right about that? That's easier than NVIDIA. I'm going to, you say yes. Hermes, you say Hermes, I say Tomato, Hermes International. <laughs> Yeah, in, in in purely in French, it's Hermes. Hermes, right. Or as we say in Philly, Hermes. Hermes. <laughs> <laughs> no, but Mark, I did want to ask you about Hermes and uh, another top holding of the fund, LVMH. Two sort of luxury good, famous luxury, European luxury good goods providers. I mean, I, there's two theses surrounding companies like this that I've heard this year. One is the China reopening will unlock a lot of demand from China. The other is high-end consumers like Vildana over there are immune. I have so many Hermes cars. <laughs> so many. They are immune to inflation. They'll keep spending. They're not pinching pennies because CPIs. I'm buying a Ferrari. For 5%. <laughs> Ferrari, another one, another <laughs> one. You know, I'm curious your rationale for having these Ferrari, LVMH, Hermes. What's the rationale with having a heavy weighting in these guys? Sure. It's very interesting because uh, side by side with NVIDIA and Microsoft and Apple and Broadcom, we have LVMH and Hermes and Ferrari. So um, what makes them appealing? First, their business models. 
they're direct to consumer models. In other words, you can only buy their product from their stores or their website. So Louis Vuitton or Hermes or Ferrari. And you can't get access to all their products. They'll sell out very quickly because they ration their most popular products to maintain exclusivity and protect pricing and margins. And they control the distribution so they don't get into inventory problems. They have pricing power. And direct-to-consumer brand models are the best in the world. And they just happen to have developed them over time. And so what you've seen is the return on invested capital for these companies has been rising quite significantly over the last decade, particularly compared to, say, European market average. And that's because of the business model superiority. Then you get to the economics of their customer. And yes, it's true. Higher end consumers are less exposed to inflation problems and pinched uh, paychecks and all of that. But the majority of the customers for luxury are actually millennial and Gen Z around the world. It's not your old wealthy people. And it, so there is a fashion element. There's a social element we don't quite understand, but the spending is quite strong. So we like the customer mix. They do a very good job managing their business, keeping supplies tight, maintaining that exclusivity and pricing power. And for that reason, you generate really strong margins and cash flow. And again, it's hard to find that consistently anywhere else, but we have found it here. We really like the industry from that perspective. But again, we only go with the big leaders. We don't go across the industry. There's only a few brands that have this capture the moment with consumers and we just like to stick with those brands. Yeah. Interesting millennial angle there. It confirms my image of Vildana driving, Flat out in Hermes. driving around in your Ferrari with on a, the streets of New York, a Louis yeah. Vuitton bag filled with <laughs> luggage, Hermes. Luggage. I did have an Hermes tie one time, Hermes tie one time, but <laughs> it was actually a hand-me-down for my older brother. Who's oh my very God. much more of a fashionista <laughs> than my Joseph A. Banks ties. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. 
Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Mark, I've, I think we've established that I did not take French in high school, but I did take Spanish, so I can pronounce another stock in your top 10. I don't think a lot of U.S. listeners are familiar with this one, so maybe you can talk to us a little bit about Mercado Libre. Oh, yeah, that's one of our favorites. So they're, you know, think of them as the Amazon of Latin America or the Alibaba of Latin America. So they span the entire region with an e-commerce platform, which is the largest. And in Latin America, even in the biggest market, Brazil, e-commerce is very underpenetrated. We estimate, for example, in Brazil, it might be around 10% penetration of the market. Whereas in the US, we're well above 20, China's almost 30. And so there's a long runway of growth for them if they continue to execute well to get more and more people online shopping. And what's different about e-commerce markets in emerging markets versus developed like the US is you usually get another facet to the platform. And in the case of Alibaba, it was financial technology. In other words, how do you get people to buy online when they don't have credit cards? You create an internet-based payment system and you allow people to load money onto that. And then it becomes a de facto payment system, not just for your e-commerce site, but people use it offline at a gas station, at a farm stand, at a grocery store, pay your utility bills, pay your Netflix bill, etc. Mercado Libra has the most valuable payments platform in Latin America as well, called Mercado Pago. And it's a big growth engine for them and a huge source of profitability. So when you think about financial access in Latin America or other emerging markets, it's really important because they typically don't have access to state-of-the-art financial services. So once you start a payments platform just to fuel your e-commerce platform, all of a sudden you can start offering all sorts of financial services on top of it at low fee. And the banking system doesn't offer it to the majority of the population. So again, you have another huge addressable market, unmet need in the marketplace that's being solved for by technology companies. So that's that's why we like it so much. Really interesting. You know, it's great to hear. Uh, we don't often talk to global fund managers with global discussions, so it's, it's educational to hear about these companies we might not know so much about. Well, Mark Barabow, he's the head of global equity at Jenison Associates, which is the fundamental equity business at PGIM. Thanks so much, Mark. We can't quite let you go just yet, though. We do have a tradition on the show where we all must discuss the craziest things we saw in markets this week. And well, Donna, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick your brain on this one. Wow, you're still going with the jokes. <laughs> the jokes are, as you said, in bad taste. The very bad taste. Yeah. But you started it, so it's all your fault. I did. Yeah. I'm not going to lend you a hand on that. Oh, my God. Okay. This, But this really was... It's, it's uh, a market. It's a market, yes, but it's also a really creepy, spooky story, right? Yeah, no more ado. Without further ado, yeah. hit them with the craziest thing. 
the manager of Harvard's medical school morgue got in trouble this week for stealing body parts and then selling them. This was a huge story on the terminal. So this guy, he allowed buyers into the school's morgue. They chose body parts from donated bodies. Organ donors. Yep. And he transported heads, brains, skin, and bones to his home in New Hampshire. Now, you were thinking, all right, is there these for organ donations, organ transplant, which would be a high dollar value? I'm obviously most obsessed with the price discovery on the body parts. You know, you hear of kidneys selling for hundreds of thousands and millions maybe. But no, this is like Cat's Creepy Corner, like a retail store selling like macabre. Yeah. Scary stuff. I'm going to I'm going to go one further because I did the due diligence to get some price discovery on these body parts and I'm not sure you did so I I think that means we can play our little game show the price is precise and I regret to inform you Mark you're now a contestant on he doesn't the, want the price is precise very good <laughs> we're going to test your are we, fund- are, we ta- are we talking for transplant or pet food <laughs> <laughs> it's more like a novelty market I'll give you an example I apologize this all is in very bad taste it really is but one guy purchased a bunch of human skin <laughs> I can't even say no this is so bad he purchased in Pennsylvania, my home state, it's just embarrassing. Ah, it would be Pennsylvania. He purchased a bunch of human skin. Then he tanned it and turned it into... <gasps> no, he didn't. He did, yeah. Which, I gotta say... Oh, my God. I personally am an organ donor. If someone took my skin and made leather out of it, maybe a no. LVMH handbag or an Hermes... Uh, no, Mark's shaking it. Mark's no. about to... No, no. Uh, Mark's about to end the Zoom yes, call if he, I keep that up. He's gone. Anyway... Price is precise. And what happened is the payments, of course, where else would they be made but Venmo? I'm Uh, surprised it wasn't via crypto. Yeah. Maybe there were some that we don't know about. One customer purchased a human head. Oh, my God. Human head number seven, to be specific. So he would let these people in to go shopping around in the morgue to decide what they wanted. This is so wild. So human head number seven was paid for with a, a Venmo payment. What do you suppose the price was for human head number seven? $20,000. $20,000. Mark, what's your uh, prices precise guess for human head? I'm not prepared for this at all, but I would say less than a thousand. Oh. That is why he is the head of fundamental. And I'm not. 1,000 exactly. What? Yeah. Yeah. 1,000 for human head number seven. Because. How do you know if you're getting the right price? It's a very thin market. Not a lot of liquidity in this market, which there's a joke there to be had, but oh don't make God. it. Don't make it. There was one Venmo payment with the memo that just said brains with no. like five eyes. Two hundred bucks for the brains. Oh my God. I think I've even disgusted myself with this segment. This is horrible. Yeah, it's horrible. But Valdana secretly loves it, you can tell. No, I just was interested in the story. <laughs> Mark, we apologize for that segment. We have to That's be tr- okay. We have to be true to our mission here, and that is truly the craziest thing. It I've really seen is. It's in- wild. There was some other stuff. There were some other good stories. Well, maybe Mark has a good one. Oh, Mark, right. you got any good crazy stories for us? Any good crazy? Mark I don't have anything. I don't have any. I can't compete with. I'm that. so sorry, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> He's never going to come back on. Well, that was Mark Barabo of Jenison at PGM. 
Really quite a pleasure to talk to you and hear your insight on everything going on in the markets these days, Mark. We really appreciate your time. Thank you. It was great to be on and hopefully you'll have me back. Yeah. We're going to pick your brain. We're going to pick your brain. Oh my God. Mark, I'm sorry. And thank you. It was great to have you on. (laughs) Thanks. We'll see you later. See you, Mark. What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at Reganonymous. Vildana Hyrick is at Vildana Hyrick. You can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. What Goes Up is produced by Stacey Wong. Thanks for listening. See you next time. I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.